Welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. At Evolution NHS, we are committed to helping people and NHS organisations realise their potential. Our goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, building trust to make doing business easier. We collaborate with NHS organisations to help them build high-performing digital teams. We achieve this by creating and sharing insights into the ever-evolving NHS and digital industries best practices. I am Ellie from Evolution Recruitment Solutions and today I am your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect official position or policy of their organisation. So today's podcast is around developing transformation skills and cultures in the NHS. Um, We're going to go around to the panel now and ask them to introduce themselves. So James, if we could start with you, that would be great. Hi there. My name is James Biggin-Lamming. I'm the Director of Strategy and Transformation at London Northwest University Healthcare Trust. Thank you. Uh, Mark, over to you. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny, uh, Associate Director of Digital Strategic Transformation. Uh, and just very quickly, uh, my background is as a clinician for 20-odd years. Did a stint in R&D for a good few years, working on uh, national uh, long-term test beds, and then jumped into digital for uh, the last four or five years. Thank you, Mark. And then Nicola, if we could go over to you, please. Hi, I'm Nicola Howard. Um, I'm the infrastructure manager at Southwest London St George's Mental Health NHS Trust, which I always think is a bit of a mouthful. Um, <laughs> I've been in IT for 33 years. This is my first NHS job, although I did work for local government for 14 years. Um, and it's been an education, but I, I, I basically started as a desktop engineer and I've basically worked my way up to where I am now. Perfect. Thank you very much. Um, okay, so we'll get started with the questions. Um, so back over to you, James. So you wanted to discuss how we can spread routines and habits into daily business as usual activities to support an improvement culture rather than it be focused on projects or limited to the most motivated. Um, so if you could just give us a bit of context as to why you want to discuss that, please. Thanks, Ellie. I thought this was topical. I've been completing, uh, coordinating our NHS Uh, impact return uh, for people who haven't come across it yet. NHS impact is the national approach to improvement, looking at some of the the principles and practices that have worked really well in in different organisations and how we'd have that ongoing improvement cultural, consistent improvement approach and framework across the NHS. Whereas uh, Mark, someone who's been here for a long time, sort of recognised we all do our own thing locally rather than at least trying to sort of row in the same direction, even if not rowing at the same time. Uh, Nicola, you might have experienced some of this a bit more recently or seen it from the outside. And part of that uh, certainly an area I have long had aspirations for and I've seen in organisations like uh, Western Sussex in uh, the NHS or heard about their sort of huddle boards and and see the great work they do when I look at some of the really strong improvement culture uh, places in the in the US uh, I've had chance to work over there and visit uh, Intermountain I was thinking about the improvement boards the huddle boards that people go around but I haven't ever cracked how to make it part of the business as usual and this was very prevalent in the NHS impact framework so I was keen to just you know understand how people are are doing that I've got great examples where some of my team have gone and set up huddle boards in a service uh, or in in a particular place or for a particular project uh, where people are 
We've got some fantastic colleagues who are are leading in this way. So when they're coming across a problem, they're not thinking about it just as one thing at a time as an operational fix, thing to fix and hit with a hammer and move on. But how they think about that sort of coaching improvement culture that really came through to me with the NHS impact uh, framework and approach and what I see as good practice. But how you spread that from individuals to make it the way of doing things uh, was an interesting challenge and I thought sort of topical to to discuss with the uh, other knowledgeable people here. Thank you James. Um, Nicola what are your thoughts on that? Throw me under the bus make me go first. Um, my <laughs> thoughts on that are as I, I literally I have been working with um, South West London St George's since April 22 so I think 16 months now. Um, I came from, like, I've been doing ITIL ever since I think ITIL was born. And some of the things that are just natural to me, this is obvious, why, how do we do this, are just not joined up. And yes, I know ITIL is a very specifically IT framework, but a lot of the way that I perceive we work, and again, your your thing about everybody sorts it out locally, um, I've actually had that as an issue come down from my manager has told me, oh, that's a local manager issue. You sort that out yourself. Whereas I'm very much, well, why are we not singing from the same song sheet? I have said that about five times in the last week. It is obviously the theme of the moment. Where So I work very closely with our client server manager. So we, we are sort of bottom senior tier of the, of the digital services department. Um, and we make sure that when we are coming up with things, we we are we are working together so that our manager can then have the same expectation of us. Because I suspect before then, the two managers that we took over from were very different people. They, they are now seconded to other places. So I know who they both are, but they work in very, very different ways. So working with the person, the, the client server manager I work with now, we make sure that we're singing from that same shop. We um, and down our teams, we're doing the same things. So that at least in ops, we are all hopefully working together like that. So so I think a lot of this around introducing good practice, this also comes, I think, a little bit from having the time to do it. And when we are ever so slightly under-resourced, as I think every, every, every department in the NHS feels like it's ever so slightly under-resourced we, when, we, when we ask for things from whoever, in corporate side especially, oh, yeah, we've not quite got enough people to give you the timely response you would like. Our procurement is slow, our HR is slow, our, our payroll is slower because of there's normally one less person than you need. That in itself then is not giving us the time to do much else but fight the fires. Um because we're inheriting policies and procedures that are not cohesive and joined up. So when we try and join things up and we think, yes, we want to take the couple of weeks it's going to take us to do this, and then an emergency is happening, okay, that has to wait. And there there are various automations and things that I know the app side, which I'm not um, sort of privy to how they work, because, again, we have this, it's a local manager, the op side and the app side of, of our department have a little bit of siloing going on as well. Um, so I know that they are adopting agile methodologies and, and various lovely little bits like that, which then sort of trickle over by the staff talking to each other rather than it being coming down as a structural support methodology. And again, that's not organic growth is not the best way to grow a consistent service, I would say. Thank you, Nicola. 
Uh, Mark, over to you. Yeah, um, that's an interesting one, actually. So as an organization, some six, seven years ago, something like that, we had an interim CEO come in, I think, who was very focused on quality improvement and, and getting out there. And, and we developed a QI team and the QI team to go out and provide some training with a view to, I guess, the idea being, <clears throat> and having been a clinician years before, you kind of understand what works and what doesn't work in your service and your area. And as you kind of innovate and you have that kind of feel for what needs doing, and then you suddenly wind up with this latent potential and, and, and people starting to do lots of interesting things, but it becomes a little bit kind of uncoordinated, unwieldy, and lots of stuff winds up on lots of registers that never quite gets where it's going. So we then went through a kind of phase of what's the support we can provide to that and what's the learning we can get to that to try and sort of, you know, make make use of some of this. And to be honest, we've not we're not quite landed it. And what we've got is we have a range of expertise that sit in kind of areas of the organization like quality improvement, like transformation, you know, like and and we're trying to kind of bring bring these capabilities together, see what it is that we're doing in terms of innovation and inverted commerce, which means lots of things, lots of people. But fundamentally, what are we what are we distilling out of that that we want to share within the organization? And we developed, we came together a little while back also with R&D colleagues and developed what's sort of ter- termed our Tide Board, which is, and we love a, a long-winded name, but sort of transformation, innovation, development, and evaluation uh, or something like that. And 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 it, the idea was to sort of show sort of pockets of, of innovation development and almost sort of just, you know, share the case, describe the case and look for is there something scalable there that we can, can learn from that. Now, it's, I would say it's still a little bit sort of fledgling, but it seems to have a, a really good representation. It hasn't sort of petered out as some of these things do. People are constantly sort of coming and, and, and presenting and sharing. It's, it's provided some interesting sort of conversation. Um, whether it's quite reached that point of how much of what we're doing we're really sieving through and deciding, okay, that's a really good thing to sort of promote and go forward with. I don't know. I don't know if we've quite hit that mark of, you know, our evaluation capability and then our determination about what we're going to sort of take forward. I think we're still kind of working that stuff through. Um, but the other, the other thought I, I, I had on that, I mean, we've got, we've got within, so like if I think of the digital director, we do quite a lot of show and tell. And again, trying to sort of learn from successes and failures and trying to sort of bring people in on that. And we've started doing some of that out into the organization. So the organization's welcome to come, you know, talk about some of these things, look at the, some of the developments we've made and get some kind of feedback on some of that. So again, they're all kind of relatively kind of fledgling, but starting, starting to take shape. And I guess that the last thing I was going to say is we're, we, we've developed we've developed innovation hubs. Um, so we have our health tech accelerator. We do a lot of work with the University of Surrey. And the aim there was to create a kind of space to really try and sort of develop and, and describe that kind of development and, and look at sort of products and the, you know, the need of, of our, our service users and our clinicians and kind of look at how we can kind of co-design and co-develop within that space. And again, it's, it's probably not quite reached the kind of area we want it to. It's still kind of in development. I think that's the thing that's quite difficult. There's lots of things that start with the aim of how do we really capture some of this and share some of this. But for some reason, we're not quite there in how we really kind of disseminate and get that kind of buy-in. And I work with the university myself. I have a, I didn't say at the beginning, but I have a, a role lecturing. And it's quite interesting because, you know, if they've got, again, this sort of, you know, this sea of, of, of people that are kind of regularly innovating that are super keen to develop. And some of the projects and programs we work with, with, with like a technical team who wants to come and learn from us as a clinical team, 
is huge. But again, you kind of get to a program and a project and then it kind of you know, peters. It, it, you wait for the next thing to come before you kind of pick up and move again. So there's bits that we take forward, but we're probably not, not quite as, as solid in the kind of a, the routines as, as you were describing, James. Nicola, to draw something to add to that. Um, I think you've, you've just made me remember, it, this is a whole about celebrating your successes as much as, as you say, revealing our vulnerabilities and our, I don't want to call them failures because they're not, but the bits where we we have gaps. Mm. Um, until this year, in fact, sort of the, the beginning of the financial year, our digital project office was not actually part of digital services. It was off with facilities. Um, so we had a really bad demand management problem. Again, it's a very ITIL concept of you manage the way, the way the work comes into you so you can keep up with what's going on. Now we've actually brought the digital PMO back into digital services. Apparently it was with us about three week, three years ago and got moved out, came back um, before my time. We've now started to do that demand management. And one of the first observations that the head of uh, the head of the PMO made is we are not talking about our success as much as we could do. Mm-hmm. Um, about we have apparently in, in southwest London, we have some of the best dashboards, patient data, manipulation, gathering, our new user con- um, commissioning is as smooth as silk. There is a lot of positives that we've already done to automate stuff and, and do like get that data and provide on whatever, make sure people are trained, report back on our compliance stats. There's a whole bunch of really good things that we're doing. But then, of course, I think we also get you get hung with your success because, of course, we prove that we can do these wonderful, amazing things. So we keep getting asked to do more wonderful, amazing things. And we go, well, yeah, but when, when what would you like us to not do to do this thing? Or what would you like us? Would you like to give us more funding? And to the answer to both of these questions is, well, no, we'd like you to do everything and we don't want to pay for it. So so we get hung with our own successes, which are, are many, as I say, the the amount of patient data and dashboards, apparently we are one of the best in, I believe, London, if not just the southwest of London. People apparently look at our trust in Envy. It's not my bit of IT, so I don't I don't get what we're doing with it. But it, it's definitely we have these very, very solid things that we are automating already. But then when we then get the weight of work, you just can't carry on with the pace of, of innovation, I feel, sometimes. We want to. And every single person in the team is dedicated to doing the best they can. Um, and we can see it, it going on with how we all talk about how we want to make it better. But we're all a little bit just under the weather because there is no, because we've, we beat ourselves up with our own successes, which isn't the way it should be. Thanks. We, we've uh, a bit like the sort of Sherry successes set up a, what we call our improvement network. We have colleagues who are really interested who might have completed some of the quality improvement training we run uh, and want to find out more. They come along and it's a chance to be on a mailing list and hear the sort of successes each month and we, we share the successes and transformation group. I think we've done a, a good job, not the, um, so we have a, a group as well that shares uh, or a way of sharing all of the different projects that are happening but it's still very much the project basis and not the business as usual basis. And it's, I guess, trying to find the next plateau on our on our journey where we've, I think, started, you were describing, Mark, all of the different projects, everyone doing something locally and all of that energy, and it wasn't necessarily joined up. We think we've, we've grown a bit past that. We have many projects now, lots of enthusiasm, but the, the projects we're picking, we're 
very much trying to make sure are fitting against our overall strategic priorities, overall focus, uh, make sure we're you know putting the resources or support behind the biggest ones that are going to make the biggest difference in the areas we've decided needed. Uh, but what we haven't done, uh, and we've got a sort of, you know, then a, a big group of sort of, of a, you know, I'd say 10 to 20, 25% of our trust really engaged and working on this. But it's the next bit uh, really starting to look at uh, where it's not just when you're doing transformation, when you're doing improvement, you're thinking about these skills. It's when you come across a problem and immediately you're thinking, well, how do I hear a patient's voice in this? What does that mean? How do I go and make a change, make a positive change without having to go and ask someone permission just because it's the right thing to do. When I've done something well, how do I go and share that with others? Because it will probably work for them as well rather than these one-time fixes. And it's, I guess, that that turning point in our culture that's going to be the the, the tricky bit we're going to be pushing at for a, a bit longer because it's not easy. It's not something, it's something that's going to happen overnight. Uh, but I hope some of that is going to be the the change and then you know the the teams getting around the huddle boards and, and sharing their successes locally and then coming and talking to others or people see as you go around uh, all of these fantastic ideas have had all these fantastic things they've already done uh, and where they're going next. I think I think it's a really interesting point because I do wonder I'm just looking back and I scribbled down the questions before we came on because I thought I might get caught out if I didn't. Do... I was just thinking about the business as usual bit and I, I it's a really interesting bit there around the culture because you know, how do we build it into people's roles? I mean, it's all the obvious stuff we kind of hear about, but, you know, when we talk about clinicians, you know, learning to use digital tools, we think, well, how do you build time into that? I think this is the same, you know, how do we how do we weave into job roles? So there's a, a sort of a, uh, you know, a need to kind of, you know, to get involved, to, to look at, to consider, to share, you know, that part of that kind of role so it becomes that kind of business as usual. It's not just this is my role. And then later on, someone says, actually, that's a really great idea. Can you share it? And it becomes, oh, I'm not great at presentations. How do I? But how do you, you know, start to build that into the thinking that as part of your role, it will be to share successes and failures so we can learn from those sorts of things, whatever it may be. But it becomes a kind of concept. And how do we free up? Because the tricky thing, of course, is for our clinicians, how do you free up time? To get actively involved in some of these these enterprises so they can learn and so on and so forth. And how do we kind of share some of that? You know, and when I've seen it work really well, I mean there's a number of things we do as an organization. It's kind of pockets. And it, you know, and it works. And you'll get some that are really keen and better than doing quite a bit of it and see the value in it. And they'll go and do more of it. And you get some that have never quite, you know, got involved in it that that you don't see it some of these kind of things. So, you know, given the amount of things we've got going on all the time, and we're in a similar position, James, where we've got, um, we're, we're, well, we're probably slightly behind. We're going to put in some governance soon to help structure some of those that um, either are meeting the need of a, a bigger priority or have a, you know, significant more resources or funding, and then sort of bring in a number of supports around those so we can start to guide some of those projects and see if they are aligned with you know, overall strategies and stuff like that. So it'd be interesting to see if that buy-in from the organisation change shifts the dial a bit further. Um but if I think of something like just very quickly, an example with our, our EPR, you know, there's lots of stuff that comes out on a regular basis that could be used to sort of change the profile of how people use the tool. But unless it kind of slots into a project or program, it's not necessarily picked up in quite that way that says, you know, as a business usual activity, I have, you have the autonomy to do this. And the teams do have the autonomy, but they probably don't feel they have the autonomy to do it and tackle it in a different way. So there's something for me there as well that says within your role, you have the autonomy to share, to 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 look at the impact of something, to to go out and talk about it, to see if people would be bought into that change or whatever. So there's there's something there for me in, in that as well. I think 
if my my observation you, you've ma- you've been making and and I, I realise where 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 we are with time as well, but definitely that again as a, an almost outside observer, I've only been in the NHS for sixteen months. There seems to be a dreadfully large amount of short term thinking underpinned with a lot of long term thinking that don't actually match each other. We we have these projects, these strategic um, visions and whatever, but we it feels like, and again because of I'm at that lower level than yourselves in terms of structure, I'm more at the cold face. Although I'm not, I have I have lovely people that are more smarter than me that do the actual do some of the actual work. Um, but it, it very much seems that we are just fixing stuff, whereas we know that there are grand trust objectives and then some of that stuff we started collaborating with the, the local ICB and there, there are whole great strategic things that are springing out of that but it almost feels like we don't have the time to even begin to think about that we're just keeping the lights on and we're doing project work and we're doing other bits and pieces so some of this is about that the, the time and encouragement and you mentioned about sort of the the, the permission to share the, the the empowerment I personally don't feel that that's very baked into the NHS and I get that because if we make the wrong decision people literally die so so we want to make sure we are doing the right things but by the same token empowering people to say hey we need, possibly could we do it a slightly different way um the answer is not but we've always done it this way so we'll just keep doing it that way we know that is not the answer that is not the way we grow as an organization but also with the pragmatic approach of that if we do it like this, we know nobody's going to die. So let's just do that until we get the time to change it, but we're never going to get the time. It is a very, sometimes feels very catch-22. Thank you, Nicola. Um, has anyone got anything else to add on that before we move on to the next question? No. Cool. Um, so Mark, over to you. Your question is given the public are becoming more active participants in their own care, what are the capabilities we need to build to ensure we improve accessibility, convenience and transparency? Uh, yeah, I mean, I chose that one because I think I've been thinking a lot recently about this kind of consumerist approach to healthcare and service design and what that means. And I think in um, cash-strapped environments, you know, as a clinician, certainly, I think you know, there's a wish to try and improve and evolve services. And often you're starting from kind of what you have and how you can try and evolve that, as opposed to kind of starting from scratch and going, what is it we could have really want to meet the, the needs? I think it's an interesting one. But I think a lot about, um, it's kind of, a, a, I guess, a bimodal model, but you know, what, is it, what is it we need to do right now? And there's lots of burning platforms. What do we need to do right now in terms of optimizing what we have while we're sort of planning for the future? And what are those capabilities? So if you look at Surrey and Borders, we've developed design teams. I built a health tech team a few years ago, you know, trying to sort of get onto that that sort of cutting edge of what are the technologies that are sort of fit for purpose and right for the needs? Um, how do we bake in maintenance and sustainability into investment models? What does adoption look like against change? So we don't just have a sort of sausage factory of products that wind up getting put on walls and then back to the service desk and we lose that sort of continuity. But how we begin to bake that in, I guess it, it's there's something for me about as as someone who uses services from time to time and I have my own sort of you know views of it. How do I want that to be for me, and how can we kind of flex into that kind of position that provides more of that, given the constraints we have? So that was my my kind of context, I guess. Thanks, Mark and um, James. What are your thoughts? Having, I think Mark, your background here is digital, so I was thinking very much about 
digital for this question and some of our experiences about how we've approached this uh, because with the with patient engagement we've done a lot on uh, virtual wards uh, and, and seen sort of great success there it's been taken up and it's really made a difference to the individual patient's care an example you know examples where it's allowed the patients both to be home earlier in a more comfortable their own environment but then have a bit more time for the conversation with the specialist nurse nurse or or somebody else to really understand their condition be it diabetes or or something else about why they had to come into hospital in the first place what they can do definitely next time to avoid it and and what that all means and that accessibility that 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 really came through on the convenience and it came through on the transparency they could see the data or the information they're sharing back with us uh, and what it meant for their treatment, about their their needs and why that was happening. It was much more convenient for them than having to suddenly, you know, leave home and be stuck in the hospital for a few days where we uh, prod and poke them every so often. But there wasn't really anything fundamentally that was acute um, that we needed to do. That's why we're much happier with the virtual ward model uh, and the accessibility being at home. And this has worked well for some older patients as well as younger patients. It's not just the, the you know the, the patients you you have in mind, uh, or you all might immediately spring to mind. But some of this is actually the capabilities that go beyond the design, go beyond the user experience, and look at the environment or how people access it in the first place. And the virtual ward only works well when the patient has the broadband connection or the decent mobile signal. Has if they're not able to use it, has someone else with a smartphone nearby. And I see there is good digital connectivity. If you look at the statistics, there's something like 90% plus of people have a broadband connection or or fast internet connection. So we need to be designing for the majority, but recognize that I think a lot of the the patients who need the greatest support and the reason why there's no one else there are the ones who fall into that 10% who don't have the, the connectivity. So how do you make sure it works for pretty much everyone but you've got that alternative accessible transparent pathway that is still that that side so for me that is people are becoming more active participants it's that capabilities amongst our, our staff and our team and our design you know our design work not to have just to have the really good virtual model or the virtual pathway that's been designed once for everyone it's how do you do that in such an effect in, in a really effective way as well as the backup and, and make sure the backup uh, is there that you're still nudging people to the one that is going to be more cost efficient, more convenient, um, but is is there and done well to help sort of address the gap and then probably its connections with partners outside who do the digital training or who might fill in some of the gap um, with the digital accessibility because it's not just our services as well, it's local authority and education and, and, and so much more that comes in. So why solve that three times over? How do we work together? with some of the partnership working to close some of the gap. Definitely. I, I would chime in there around definitely that last note about joined up working. Again, having worked within local government, I worked for Camden Council for 14 years. We definitely did the outreach with, I can't remember who our local trust was, but it, it was like they did us and Islington and it wasn't joined up properly. So we've got different catchment areas between council and NHS. Um, from a service user perspective, I am wonderfully non-complex. So my main interface with these digital channels is the GP. But last year and the year before, my mum got sick and unfortunately passed. And me trying to get access to the services she needed to get her the help 
she she was diagnosed very late before with dementia about three months before she actually passed but she'd been showing signs looking back year 18 months and there were these little individual bits and pieces of well this is the and it was never joined up and also she couldn't her gp said oh, i'm gonna get on a soapbox i've got to get off the soapbox and be calm um her GP surgery put in a you must log us a ticket, you are not allowed to call us system. She could not do that. So I ended up having to do it for her. And it was very frustrating from that perspective of if you are, we are all very sane, I work for a mental health trust, but we are all very sane, capable, intelligent people. And yes, designing for the majority, potentially the people that need us most are not people who are sane or capable. And, and they don't have, not capacity in the legal sense, but they can't cope with, I've got to fire up this weird computery thing, or I've got to use a smartphone to get onto my GP surgery to log a call and fill in this million form. My mum did not have the capability to do that towards the end of her life, and she needed it the most. So, yes, we, we still need to be designing, whereas my surgery... You pick the phone up, although I've, I've now moved surgery, but my, my surgery, you pick the phone up, you talk to a human, you get told, oh, yes, we can't see you for however long because, of course, there, we know there is a GP crisis going on. Um, but even so, I could talk to a person, tell them what was wrong. They said, right, yes, you're this or you're this, you're this. Here is when you get your appointment. And then I would have a virtual appointment with the doctor on the phone. We'd have a conversation. And, and for me, that's lovely, simplistic. That, that use path is fantastic. But for my mum... It was also the whole because we I then get her an appointment booked, she might not answer the phone. And I'm I wasn't with her all the time. So she kept slipping through the cracks in the system that is designed for people that are able. And it could be this is where I get onto an accessibility point, is where we we're not possibly baking in accessibility to our digital transformation as much as we could do. Because we are, we are at the forefront of people that are not as able. It's what's one of our main reasons, Detra. The people that aren't going to trouble us are the people that are able, are well. And we're designing for them, potentially, not the people that are less capable. Oh, get <clears> off <throat> my telebox. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, I, I agree. I think it's a real challenge. I think, I think you know, listening to you know, both of what you were saying, I think that, you know, how do we, how do we standardise, I guess, the bits that we can? While adapting and constantly iterating for those, because of course you you, know, you identified diverse needs, but as you're going along, it's a continuous bit, isn't it? You kind of identify this group may have been excluded, or this. You know, I work in a mental health and learning disability organisation, so of course, depending on where someone's mental health is, may impact their ability to engage. Going to your point, so I think you know there's a there's a challenge of you can't necessarily meet everybody's needs all at once. So you're going to what what's the standards you're going to try and adopt? And if you take like, you know, the user-centered research type sort of philosophy, you know, there's a million and one different sort of varieties within that. So kind of how you can step through that, I guess, and have the ability to kind of iterate, you know, the the products, the solutions, the resources, whatever it may be, to try and sort of tackle some of these things is, is one sort of aspect of it. Um, and I think and I think more and more when we think about, you know, a consumerist model, and I mention that because I think quite a lot about other agencies and organizations trying to come in into the healthcare space to provide that, which understand in almost from a retail market, you know, very well what consumers need. And actually one of the things, for example, is how do I track where my appointment is? You know, and this is a constant bit that's regurgitated all the time. But if Amazon can do it, how come you know, healthcare can't say where you are? Well, of course the data's not integrated for a start, so it's very difficult to track where you are between one referral and another. 
But it does make life, as you were describing it, you know, really difficult. And I won't begin to tell you now, because I won't get on my soapbox, the challenges I've had <laughs> just trying to get a physio appointment through my own GP, which just has a very sem- simple, sensible system of you can make your own referral for an assessment. And depending on that, will outcome then whatever. No, now you've got to go through so many hoops. I even asked them, do you want my help in structuring how you've done this? But <laughs> it's um, it's it's interesting, I think. And, and, and how you kind of, because again, we're kind of strat, how do, how do we think about all those needs and plan for those needs and have the kind of funding and the and the, the mindsets i guess to kind of to, to plan accordingly is, a, is an interesting challenge and i'd also just point about the joined up thing because a lot of one of the reasons my mum fell through cracks is because it was a crack between the nhs and the local authority once mm. she'd had her diagnosis the gp her gp literally said to me oh, well now she's had her diagnosis it's palliative care that's the that's your local authority's problem please let me know how you get on with that mm which was not very helpful to, to me at that point in time. Yeah. And and then the local authority, literally the Alzheimer's charity that got the referral, she rang my local council and they just did not want to know because they are cash-strapped. And they just yeah. it, was, it was just these brick walls after brick walls that I know we all want to solve, but this whole lack of being joined up, it feels like we are designing ourselves to fail and it's not helpful. Oh, that's very glum, isn't it? So there's um you're talking about the sort of consumerist models or if i think about good customer experience and this is where i hope some of the technology or these processes come in to make it accessible a lot of the questions people might ask are, you know i assume it's a 80 20 pyramid you know 80 percent of the questions are asked by uh 80 of the people and then it's the the last 20 percent are then you know might go It'd be all sorts of random things uh, all over the place. So if you can get the, for the 80% of the people asking that, I'm sorry, we 20% of the same questions every single time, what, what time, when's my appointment, when's my prescription? If we get good systems to do that, first of all, that takes such a workload away, it hopefully frees up some of the resource to deal with the complicated that isn't the, can be answered with a, an automated response or, or some some clever process design in the same way as when I contact my bank, 80% of their queries are exactly the same, I imagine, uh, and they're able to get me that answer very quickly in a convenient way. And when I need something more complicated, that's when I go through to the call center. So we haven't really developed that or sort of embraced it in the way that I think some of the big consumer companies have done. And, and some of that comes to down to how we work together structurally. We're big organizations. We deal with lots of phone calls, but nothing to the same extent as a, a national call center for all the different branches of, of a, a, and, and what that looks like. The other bit is then coming in with some of the technology and one of my team were telling me around how they we could train uh, so there's chat GPT type systems on our policies. So you feed them into the large language model. And when you want to ask a question, which I bother my HR team all the time, you know, oh, I've, someone's thinking about secondment, which policy do I need to do? Uh, it will be able to actually you know, start the natural language processing, being able to start pointing you in the right direction because it's been trained on your policies. So I don't know how we're going to crack that, but it feels like we're on the cusp of something with um, there for some of that automated feedback as well that 
actually if it's a more natural conversation it's it's bridging the gap and probably something a bit accessible because no one well the you know you could draw up the process chart that the process is the same the fundamental question being what's my appointment with so many people coming to the start of that journey they'll come to it in so many different ways or ask it in so many different ways it doesn't feel like a great experience when you end up there so if there are you know, if technology is now on the cuffs that to allow for that variation in the in the ask, but to get to the outcome, we might be in something that is also using some of these new tools, something that's more accessible, more convenient for people. I think where where you were talking and our theme of joined upness, um, this this also reminded me of when I worked at the council because effectively a council is fifty three businesses under one name, and it struck me as you were talking that so is the NHS. We all do in our own little departments very different things under one big umbrella. So so where you were talking about my bank can tell me what is my bank. The bank has one job to look after your money. One yeah. job. Just it does one very simple focused thing. So it could be we are a victim of not having focus because we are trying to affect we are being all things to all people in regards to health, which I believe is a very positive and wonderful thing. But it leads to if we are not joining up and we are not all under the same thing and we're not using the same systems or the same processes to automate when is my appointment is actually really difficult because you're talking about a heck of a lot of middleware at that point to join up the various bits and pieces yeah. um, to allow us to say if you I mean God if you if you get a referral that is out of your trust or out of your area. Well, their system is going to be completely different to the system you've been booked in under. You are never going to get that integration as we stand right now. So there's a heck of a lot of work that I feel we would probably need to do, whether they would then be willing to get investment for that, because, of course, every money money rules with these sorts of things, unfortunately. It is the reality. Um, so we do the best we can. So we can't automate all of these really easy simple consumer led visions because we are not it's one of the reasons why jeff bezos why amazon is held up as a model make it have an api if it doesn't have an api i am not interested it was the guiding light of how amazon worked we've not baked that into any of the nhs system it's an interesting one systems or central government systems so none of it talks to each other I think it's a really interesting point. I can, I guess, my last thing just would say around procurement. I guess you know when we think about health, I think the thing that strikes me is if you think about, I guess, the environment we're living in. Health, health, health isn't just sat in health services and social care. I guess you know if, if we're going to talk about kind of ethical healthcare, you can even argue that the supermarkets that that monitor your choice of food option. If you were to kind of blend that in with your kind of health needs and diabetes and pointing out good foods and bad foods and you get into all that. To me, when I start to think about healthcare and I think about the external partners we work with, you know, and and what sits behind there in terms of data, there's obviously big questions about, you know, consent and data sharing and kind of how that all works. But it's interesting in the kind of your modern day and age, there's, there's, there's a lot of different players that come into this kind of space and guide you towards certain options. And from an ethical point of view, you could argue, well, there's probably a part to be playing then in, in, in really helping to kind of work with some of the conundrums we have and proactively guiding people to kind of choices and stuff. There's lots of debates within that. I, I appreciate not just a simple, but but there is that kind of capability and partnership development and actually how, how we start to use data. I mean, a little while ago, 
I know one of the banks was doing something related to, you know, points if you use these other kind of areas. So if we're starting to share data on different connecting points, there's something about, you know, how we do that within healthcare and promote, you know, well-being, healthy living, whatever you want to call it, with a view to trying to keep people out of those health services or when things start to deteriorate. So, but, you know, consent and data sharing and people's fear of all that obviously comes into play. But there's a lot of opportunity here as well, I think. I'll stop talking now. It probably not makes a nice segue into automation and <laughs> and, um, and uh, AI and then the next question. Thanks, Mark. Um, yeah, so final question is from Nicola. Um, so how can we leverage systems, automations and AI to surface issues before they turn into problems given our restricted resources? So over to you, Nicola. As I said, because my context on, on asking these sorts of questions is a little bit closer to the coalface potentially than yourselves. Mine, it, it's definitely that whole work smarter, not harder attitude. We we only have so many people with so many hours and it's how we then best leverage those hours. And, and it is literally around the what types of things could we put in place? And I, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely thinking from an internal I'm an internal operations perspective here rather than definitely consumers, although you can think about it from that perspective as well. Those whole early warning systems that tell us um, Rio is going to fall over and we can see it happening, it's going to happen, or um, that person with their, the, oh, they, they've come in, they've had some blood tests, that blood test wasn't very good. They look like they might be developing diabetes, which I know has not been happening that very, we don't have a proactive health system, we have a sickness management system most of the time um very reactively around i know i i I got myself i got diagnosed with endometriosis in 2003 and no one has ever checked up to see if i still have a problem with that and i thankfully it was very very small problem and i don't believe that that was an accurate diagnosis but it's on there but i've never ever had any follow-up etc etc because we are quite reactive and it, a bit of 2000 and year two three is years and years ago in terms of technology digital transformation and all that stuff but it's that whole well, how we now are swimming drowning in the amount of data we generate about people circumstances environments all that thing so it, it's from our, a our own operational perspectives how can we as the nhs spot things that are going on inside ourselves so that it doesn't turn into a big problem. But also then how for our patient service users, related parties, how can we, again, there's an issue that is is something, how can we then say to someone, yeah, it looks like, looks like you might start wanna thinking about stuff because we've spotted in the last sort of three or four appointments you've had that things are not, not as they could be, let's come and have a chat. We catch it before it becomes, we need to give you medication or we need to get you to do this or, we, or you're gonna to have to go and have an op catching it very small because uh, prevention is better than cure totally so that's that sort of the, the context of that yeah i mean it's, so i think having having played for a while with remote monitoring solutions so i spent quite a bit of time with remote monitoring solutions so i mentioned briefly um we had tim for dementia i don't know if anyone's ever heard of it but technology integrated health management it was a NHS England long-term test bed for chronic conditions and trying to manage people at home. Crudely, what we did is we worked with a range of different private suppliers and university organisations to basically develop a, a system of 21 different sensors at one point, passive and active sensors, that provided information on a person, on their daily living, activities of daily living. That information translated to give kind of an individual kind of reference point of how that person was coping in a whole range of kind of areas. 
And then there was parameters. Come outside the parameter, alert goes off, monitoring team uh, were there sort of, you know, looking at some of that and then signposting people and phoning or guiding to GP or whatever. So that that sort of proactive use of data to kind of work out how your health status has changed and therefore we can react earlier, you know, in this day and age is, you know, you seem, you know, like a bit of a sort of no-brainer and you have virtual wars, you have other things like that ongoing at the moment. We also have other technologies. I was involved in the or leading the, the largest inpatient remote monitoring system we set up with OxyHealth. You know, again, aiming to provide data before the worst you know, happens. I think what's interesting with some of these things that I've seen over the course of time is, and some people have more traction than others, is again, the way the sort of, and of course comes down to funding, but how the funding is managed. Mm-hmm. So you get your capital funds and you set something new up and you go, hey, look, done some evaluation, it looks like it's it's quite good and it provides this sort of return. But the recurrent funding isn't there. So it becomes, how do you invest against that, against a whole load of other things that are kind of burning platforms right here, right now? And I think that that front-loading you know, to try and transform the NHS to to deal with and to and to make sort of you know, sensible choices like that. It, it, it's complex, and there's lots of devices out there that people, of course, use on a day-to-day basis. Not necessarily medically device registered, but gives them an idea of where their kind of health roughly is. Am I sleeping well? Am I exercising enough? Whatever it may be. How do you begin to kind of really start to use some of that? Um, even if it's not like the biggest sort of AI construct behind it, but actually how do you start to use some of that information? And I even, I was chatting to um, some of our inpatient consultants a few months ago about some of this. And they were saying, look, you know what, some of the best guidance for people with mental health problems that come out of inpatient is actually restlessness, sleeplessness. So a simple sort of sleep map can provide you actually quite a bit of information. You don't necessarily need all these other sort of complex tools. But again, we've still got to obviously set the system up that allows for some monitoring. And what they were finding was that you know, even something as simple as a text to some of the most complex people on a regular basis was enough just to keep ticking over and see if something had gone awry. But the minute you drop that out, people start coming back in, you know, start to get admitted again, because even that simple contact has gone. So it doesn't necessarily need to be everything. But I think if you want to make that transformational shift, in acute, there's a bit more money maybe with the virtual ward. Mental health doesn't see a lot of that. But, you know, how do we make that transition? You know, how's the sort of funding set up to, to support it? I think there's... Um... There's something around our business processes and there's, you know, ad- aggregating and understanding the different information and something around how we change some of the, you know, how we use our systems. So it's not just looking three months down the time and saying, hey, it's a performance report, but much more in that sort of real time predictive sense. And again, there's sort of looking outside some of where this is done well rather than where we're, you know, we, we're asking these questions because we know we, we know can do much better. Uh, whether that's, I've seen sort of, uh, again, acute side ops rooms coming together for winter um, and having those sort of live bed states, a tele-tracker, I don't know if people have come across as a um, bed uh, ID, RIFID ID system. And uh, so you get that sort of real-time state of who's in the bed in a way, however good our EPRs are, they're only as good as the information that people are putting into them and you miss some of that automation. So we've just uh, switched our, our new one on and when as people are getting the hang of discharging they've been doing a you know, really excellent job getting to grips with this complicated system very quickly but you still rely on people to enter that i've now discharged the patient and been able to to be able to know the bed's empty as opposed to technology solutions like the sleep map example where you know someone's there well they're not uh, and it's telling you in, a, in that live sense so there's some of these control systems some of these other ones as a way to give us a bit of insight of what's going on rather than 
it being the human process of someone having to put something in the machine and then we look at the answer. Um, how, how can we make some of those tasks easier? The other anecdote to share is something my one of my strategy team did recently where they came and presented me all of this con- uh, synthesized written feedback uh, on our corporate feedback surveys. We do a net promoter score we've just introduced for our corporate services. And there's a free text response and sort of thematically analyzed all of it. It was a great piece of work, but it looked about two days worth of work. And I didn't really want him spending two days worth of work doing that compared to all the other things. And he confessed that it didn't take him two days. He fed it into uh, chat GPT uh, with the right instructions. And that it'd come back 20 seconds later, synthesized with these insights. And given the amount of information we get and have to work through, actually thinking about some of these other tools that are out there to bring that, to make it a bit easier to say, here's what's important. Here's the signal amongst all the noise. And this is a bit you want to act on in the same way you're talking about the control limits for your patients. If they hit that, that's when you call the patient rather than having to call them periodically every few weeks. And we do similar things, patient initiated follow-ups. What's the signal that says, actually, now's the time for a follow-up rather than we'll see you in six months because we always see you in six months. So, and links us back to the question, Nicola, you asked about personalization. You know, how, how do we uh, mark the personalization accessibility? It all, it all comes back together. And if we could get some of these processes designed in such a way. So I have hope for the technology, but then it's the cost. It's a, particularly the capital cost, not mm. just the recurrent, but the, the capital cost of doing this in the first place, then giving it time to get embedded and then finding a way to scale it up. Um, but yeah, so nothing genius to add, but um, I had some you know, relevant anecdotes. I, I definitely think that whole, and, and government, I think government structures suffer from, we love CapEx, we hate OpEx. We love setting stuff up, but keeping it going, there's a bit of a problem around that. Um, I disagree. In the NHS, we hate CapEx. We don't, if you look at any of the international benchmarks, we are about half as much as most other um, sort of major developed health economies uh, and have been for years and years and years, which is why I think a big reason why we're in the challenge we're in, because we haven't been having these ongoing CapEx investments. We've been raiding it because the OPEX hasn't been big enough. Um, or we haven't been really being able to deal with the OPEX. So sorry to interrupt, Nicola. It's no, just no, no. It, it, it's good. I, I, I suppose I see it from a very IT perspective where we invest in hardware or we invest in a server, but Office 365 is a real challenge because it's operational and that's a revenue cost. And how do we do that? So I, I, it could be that because of the systems I see, I'm limited in the vision. Um, and now, now I've lost my train of thought around what I was thinking about, but about... Um, what you were saying around following up with people and if we had the way of using chat gpt models or whatever large language modeling to say yeah actually this person needs a phone call um, and not leaving people dangling so the problem doesn't get escalated in itself because as i say what 80 90 percent of the population isn't going to see the doctor year to year I, I, I have high blood pressure, so I do see my doctor every six months. I don't see him. I haven't seen him in about two and a half years. Um, I think I, I went in, I, I, I got a numb toe, and that was the last time I saw. But before then, I hadn't seen, been seen by a doctor. I'd talked to them, definitely. Um, and again, that's good child shift. That's allowing us to be efficient. I don't have to travel. They don't have to have people waiting. Um, they can talk to more people because there's not so much churn. So I, I'm very fully supportive of that virtual model of health but allow as long as you can be seen when you need to be seen but again the follow-up on that of oh again i went in for 
because I had a numb foot, I got referred through the physio into back class. I had my six sections of back. I got much better. And of course, being a human being, I haven't done my exercises as much as I should have done. But again, it's on. It's, again, some of this is about taking responsibility for your own health. And I acknowledge that that is good. But also that whole, oh, we gave this person physio a year ago. I wonder if they're okay. Just make sure that do we need to give them a top up so that I effectively don't end up with number feet and taking up more resources again. It's just that sending a text saying it's been a year. Do you do you possibly need to come back in and get a top up and and streamlining that sort of proactive earlier response, giving me another six sessions of back class is probably going to help me, and it will focus me to make sure I go and do my exercises, um, as much as actually I've left it, I've left it, I've left it. I'm in pain, I'm in pain. I need more drugs. Um, I'm going to then get a numb whatever again, and then I'll go and see the doctor because that's how human beings work. We have to also be realistic about how we as humans work. We don't move until our pain, whatever that pain is, is, is greater than our tolerance for it. And I think sometimes for ourselves as well, it's it's some of this is we're so busy doing what we need to do to serve our people. We take a lot of corporate pain. We are a for-purpose business, essentially. We are not for profit. We are for purpose. Our purpose is to serve the UK population at the highest level, or the NHS England, the English population, NHS Wales, NHS Scotland, et cetera, et cetera. That is our purpose, to serve our, our clients at the highest level. So, so every decision we make is, is should be feeding into how can we serve someone at the highest level to make sure that their health needs are as small as possible. They need the least amount of medication. They need the least amount of touch points for what is going on with them. But if they, what they need, they get would be my ideal world. If you need a lot, you get a lot. If you need a little, you get a little. But you get what you need in proportion to what you want. And it's a personalised approach. Again. It's yeah, a personalised approach. Absolutely. We can't come full circle. Hey, we have. You're completely right. <laughs> Before we end the podcast, I'd like to say thanks so much to all our guests for sharing their thoughts in today's conversation. If you are hiring for new technical roles or looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, you can drop me a message too. I am Ellie Fox and you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at ellie.fox at evolution-contract.co.uk. Thanks again to all our guests and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.